We, we praise the Lord for you, and we praise the Lord uh, for His church. And it's in that same theme this morning that I want to continue with you talking about the local church. I want to I talk about what does God's Word say about the local church. And we're going to zoom out of what Pastor Scott's been doing in Ephesians. And this morning, I want to turn some things back to your heart from the Word of God on why we should love the local church. We're going to do that this morning by not, not just looking at one text, but we're going to look at several texts. And we took a week on this in 1824 over the summer. And uh, I was talking with Pastor Scott about this message. He said, go for it. And so I'm, I'm fired up because I, I love the local church. And I, I love the local church because our Lord loves the local church. And it's worthy of our highest affection. But listen... You know as well as I know that many people don't feel that way. Many people would, would rather do without the church. Many people, even Christians, view the church with, with boredom and indifference. And you guys know that this is, this is just the reality. Many Christians see no real need for the church. They would rather just maybe hang out on the periphery or they, they show up late and they leave early. Some people just want to check the box that they came to church and get out without anyone asking about their life. Uh, but here's the issue. You cannot love Christ and have a low view of the church. You cannot love Christ and have a low view of the church. To think that you can love Christ and be indifferent to the church stands in direct contradiction to what the church is. The church is not merely a human building or a human institution that upholds morality. The church is a body, it's a group of people that are Christ followers. They follow Christ. The word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia, and it, it literally means called out, or the, those who have been called out. So the church is made up of individuals who have been called out of death, called out of sin, into righteousness and eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in the church, God has, has called you out as a group of people who were once far from him, and he has made them, he has made you a people for his own possession. So if you're in Christ, God adopted you into the church at the moment of your salvation. It's amazing. But not only did God adopt you into the church, he placed you into a local expression of that body. He placed you into the local church. God's design for his people, God's design for his church is that they would live together in community. The, the local church then ought to be the focal point of the believer's life. So to say that we can be indifferent to the church is just not an option. We ought to love the church. We ought to love what God has called us to. We ought to love what God has placed us into. And guys, we cannot forfeit the joy of, of being indifferent to the church. We can't forfeit the joy of life with God's people by being on the fence. There's too much at stake for us to be indifferent to the church. We need men and women who are all in on, on the local church. And if the church is to be all that God has created the church to be, then you and I need to love the local church. We need to give the church our best, and we need to slide all our chips on the table for the local church. But let me ask you, what, what's going to compel you to love the local church? What's going to grip your heart 
and raise your affections for the local church? Well, that's the question that we're gonna be answering this morning. And to do that, I wanna give you five compelling reasons to love the local church. Five compelling reasons to love the local church. So whoever you are, whatever stage in life you're at, I want these five reasons to grip your heart and cause you to love the local church, okay? So let's dive in this morning. Five reasons to love the local church. Number one, Christ promised to build his church. We ought to love the local church because Christ promised to build his church. Go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning if you brought one. If not, there's a, there should be a Bible under your seat there. And go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew is the first, first book in the New Testament toward the end of your Bibles. Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gives his promise to build his church. This is one of the, one of the greatest statements, really, in, in all of Scripture. Go ahead and look down at Matthew chapter 16 and look down at verse 13 and follow along with me. It says this. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Jesus is speaking to his men, and he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's an interesting question. What what do people say about me? Who, Who do people say that I am? And they said, look at the text, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And now what Jesus does here is very interesting. Jesus is gonna turn the question on them. Look at the text. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? That's one of the most determinative questions anyone could ever answer. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Amazing. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, before this time, Jesus had never explicitly told his disciples who he was. Now, he had shown them who he was, but he had never explicitly said that. But God the Father caused something to click in Simon's mind, and he knows you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's based off Peter's confession It's based off that truth in Jesus' identity that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, that Jesus gives his promise. Look at it there in verse 18. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail prevail against it. Now, I want you to notice two things about Jesus' statement here. First, I want you to notice who is building the church. Jesus says, I will build my church. This is Jesus' mission in the world. This is his focus. This is his priority. He is actively building his church. And he's he's not focused on building the structures of the church. He's not focused on building the church financially. He is building his church by saving lost sinners and leading them into salvation. And again, not only does he save lost sinners, he places them into a local expression of that church. 
And I want you to notice, he is the one accomplishing the work. He builds his church. We don't build the church. Christ builds the church. We have no power to build the church. Why? Because we don't have any power within us to transform someone's heart, okay? There's a steel curtain around the heart of every individual, and you and I have no access to that. But the one who created the heart has access to it, and he can change the heart, and he does change the heart, and he builds his church by using us as instruments to bring the gospel, to bring the message of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And when that gospel is believed, Christ changes the heart and places that sinner into the church. He's the one building the church. Now secondly, I want you to notice the certainty of Jesus' statement. He says, I will build my church. Jesus is certain. He's making a promise. This will happen. This will be accomplished. He's not hoping this is gonna happen. He's declaring, I will do this. I will build my church. It will succeed. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not even death can bring a threat to the church because Jesus Christ himself, the one building the church, has defeated death. Jesus says the church is those who believe in the Son and though they die, yet they shall live. Amazing. You say, is is Jesus building his church now? And I, I would say yes, but let me show you. Look at, look at Acts 1. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. But Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven following his resurrection, he, he didn't stop working. He didn't stop working. Even though he wasn't on earth, his work had, had really, in a sense, just begun. And in Acts 1, I love this. Acts 1, verse 1, Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke and the author of Acts, he writes this. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, Jesus is still at work. In the Gospels, Jesus is just, he's just getting started building his church. You say, well, what is Jesus doing? Well, if you keep reading in the book of Acts, we see again and again and again phrases like this. He says, "And, and the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So what's Jesus doing? Well, he's he's building his church. He's building his church. If we ever wonder what God is doing in the world today, here's our answer. He's building his church. This is the mission of God in the world. This is his priority. And guys, we ought to love the church because Christ promised to build it. Not only is, is Christ building his church, but I want to show you how Christ values the church. How does Christ value the church? Point number two, Christ died for the church. We ought to love the local church because Christ died for the church. Now, the Navy SEALs are known as the highest trained special operations forces in in all of the U.S. military. And the SEALs, the Navy SEALs, they go through this training that it takes 24 weeks 24 weeks of some of the most grueling training in the U.S. military. SEAL training, it's, it's known by, by many, even all the branches, there might be some debate, but it's known as the most difficult training in, in all of the military. 
They say that SEAL training is so difficult that more, more SEALs die in training than they do in combat. And in their training, just to give you a picture of SEALs, they have to get so uncomfortable with water and they have to get so uncomfortable with being cold that they are systematically taken to different stages of hypothermia. Not only that, but there, there's one week in particular, if you know about the SEALs, you've, you've probably heard about this, but there's one week in particular where they're only allowed four hours of sleep throughout the whole week. Now, now the question is, why would they sacrifice so much in their training? More people die in training than in combat. Why, why would they sacrifice so much in training? The answer is because they value protecting their country, they value protecting each other, and they value accomplishing the task and returning home alive. Here, here, here's the point I want to drive home. We ascribe value to something that we sacrifice for. Now, let me, let me tell you this. The local church is the most valuable thing on planet Earth. Why? Because Christ sacrificed his very own life for the church. The sacrifice for the church was the greatest sacrifice that anyone could ever offer. Jesus Christ shed his blood for his church and the case is closed. That's the most valuable thing on planet earth. In Acts 20, 28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, he says, pay attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church is of highest value because it's bought with the highest price. Peter tells us that the church was bought with the most precious commodity in the world. He says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The church is so valuable that the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood for it. And we're not valuable in ourselves. We need to be clear. We're not, we don't have value in ourselves. But Jesus Christ describes the church the greatest value in the world because he shed his blood for the church. As Jesus went to the cross, never before had he experienced any sort of separation from the Father and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit reigned in eternal harmony, perfect harmony forever before the cross. But as Jesus was nailed to that cross, for the first time and the last time ever, he was separated from the Father and the Spirit. He was separated from the, from the Trinity. Now, the separation was, it was only emotional and judicial. It wasn't essential. He didn't, he didn't cease to be God. But it was judicial and it was emotional. And the Father poured out the eternal, righteous fury and anger and wrath toward the Son. He poured out His wrath on His Son. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the only time ever that Jesus called the Father God and not his Father. And as Jesus hung on that cross, Isaiah 53 tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities. 
It says that this was the will of the Lord to crush him. It says he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered among the transgressors. Jesus was punished on the cross, listen to this, as though you and I were hanging on that cross. He was punished on the cross as though you and I were hanging on that cross. Now the question I want to ask this morning is why did he do it? Why would Jesus go through all of that, the most grueling suffering that we could ever possibly imagine? Why did he do it? Why did he, why did he suffer the wrath of God? And this will change your life. This will change your view of the local church. Because he did it to redeem his church. He did it to win his bride. He did it so that the church could be covered in his perfect righteousness and dwell with him forever. Paul said it this way. He said, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The one who was infinitely rich in heavenly glory became poor and suffered the wrath of God so that you and I could have his heavenly riches. This fact alone ought to encourage us to love the local church, to love Christ's church. Nothing on earth is more valuable than the church because it was bought with the blood of Christ. If Jesus values the church, then we should value the church. If Jesus loves his church, then we ought to love the church. And listen, we need, we need to be clear. We don't love the church above the Lord. We don't love the church apart from the Lord. We love the church because our Lord loves the church. And we love the church because we love the Lord of the church. And not only do we love the church because Christ loves the church, we, we love the church because we love the one who reigns over the church. Point number three, Christ is the head of the church. We ought to love the church because the greatest being in existence reigns as its head, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the body, and Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church. And we see this in Colossians 1 as, as Paul is establishing the preeminence of Christ. He is communicating to the Colossians, why, why is Christ preeminent? Why is Christ of surpassing worth? And here's how he describes him. Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then Paul says this of Christ. Why, why is Christ of surpassing worth? Because he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus Christ reigns as the head of the church. So if you are a believer, then you don't just belong to the church, you belong to Christ. Christ is our head, and we are his body. Christ is the king, and we are his subjects. Christ is our creator, we are his creatures. Christ is our shepherd, we are his sheep. Christ is the master, we are his slaves. Christ is our husband, we are his bride. Christ is the vine, we are his branches. And apart from him, we can do nothing. He is the head of the church. Now, we don't just say that Christ is the head of the church because it sounds like the right thing to say, 
because it sounds like a ni- nice idea, right? We, we say that Christ is the head of the church because Christ truly is the head of the church. And so let me ask you this morning, how does Christ actively function as the head of Grace Church of the Valley? How, how is Christ the head of Grace Church of the Valley? And the answer is this, Jesus Christ exercises his headship every single time the word of God is unleashed from this pulpit. In other words, as, as we hear from the word of God, we're hearing from the head of the church. We're hearing from, not from man, but from God who speaks to his church through his word. And to the degree that we submit to that word is the degree that we submit to the authority of the head of the church. Now, I, I think you would agree with me we only want for this church what Christ wants for this church. And if we only want for this church what Christ wants for this church, we strive to submit to his word. We strive to submit to his authority in every way, both corporately as we carry out the function of this church and individually as we obey his authority. He rules every aspect of this church. And now what's, what's important to note is that Christ doesn't rule his church like a bad leader or a bad, a poor CEO. He's not removed and detached from his people. Christ is near to his church. Let me show you this in, in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John is writing of the revelation he has seen of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 1.9, as, as, as John is seeing this revelation of Christ, John writes, Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John is seeing this vision of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice where John says Christ is. As John beholds Christ, he's, he's seeing Christ. I want you to see where John says that Christ is. Look at verse 12. He says, Then I turned. To see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Where, where does John say that Jesus was standing? In the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, what, what do the seven golden lampstands represent? Well, Revelation 120 tells us that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches, which represent the church as a whole. In other words, Christ is standing in the midst of his church. Even now, even now, Christ is standing in the midst of his church. Jesus told his disciples, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is exactly what he meant. Christ is alive, Christ is active, and Christ is intimately involved in the activity of his church. 
Guys, this ought to give us a great encouragement. This ought to give you great comfort that Christ is active in his church. I just want to ask you this morning, is there anywhere else you would rather be? Is there anywhere else that you would rather be than in Christ's church, the one that he stands in and is active in? If Christ is the head of the church, then I, I want to be a part of it. You want to be a part of it, amen? If Christ is, is the head of the church and if Christ is the one who, who reigns over the church, then we ought to love the church with our highest affection. We ought to love the church because Christ promised to build it. We ought to love the church because Christ died for it. We ought to love the church because Christ is the head of the church. And now I want to turn the corner with you. These first three reasons have to do with Christ and his church. But I want to turn the corner in point number four and tell you that we ought to love the church because we need the church. Point number four. <clears throat> The health of your soul is dependent on the church. We're not unattached from this equation. We ought to love the church because the health of our soul is dependent on the church. If we are going to be all that God desires his church to be in this Christian life, then we absolutely need the church. How do I know this? How, how do I know that we need the church? Well, simply put, because God tells us that we need the church he tells us in Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So at the most basic level, we need the church because God says we do. He says, do not neglect to meet together. Do not try and live the Christian life without the encouragement of the local church. And how arrogant it would be for us to think that we know how to live the Christian life better than God. Instead, God says, don't neglect meeting together, but encourage one another. Now, we don't necessarily need the church to be a Christian, do we? And I would just say, I don't necessarily need to go home to be married to my wife. But my marriage is going to be a lot better if I go home and be with my wife and our Christian life is going to be a lot better if we join together and live the Christian life together. The, the local body of believers ought to be walking shoulder to shoulder in this Christian life, carrying out the one another's. We need to be together. We need to build up one another. We need to be here Sunday after Sunday building one another up. Why? Why, why, why do we need to do that? Well, here's the key. The Christian life, God designed our Christian life, our sanctification, to be a community project. This is a community project. The author of Hebrews, again, notes, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need the accountability of one another so that we don't fall into the deceitfulness of sin. And when someone is in sin, one of the worst things that they can do is separate themselves from the local church. But that's, that's usually what happens. When someone's in sin, they, they stop meeting together. They, they neglect to meet together. But we cannot do that because we need one another. We need the people around us to stir us up to love and good works. We need, I need the church. When, I'm, when we're going through trial, we need the comfort of the church. We need someone to disciple us. We need someone to teach us. 
Not only that, but we need the means of grace that God provides through his church. Our soul benefits when we sit under the preaching of God's word. Our soul benefits when our hearts are lifted up in worship together. Our soul benefits when we take time to reflect and take communion and think about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point. When the church is together, we profit spiritually. When we come together, we profit spiritually. We ought to love the local church because God has designed the health of our soul to be dependent on the church. Now, as we turn to our final point this morning, our love for the Lord, our love for his church ought to overflow in a love for the mission of the church. Point number five, we should love the church because God is glorified through your service in the church. We should love the church because God is glorified through our service in the church. And in his doxology, the section we've been looking at in Ephesians, Paul concludes his prayer and he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory in the church. So why should we love the local church? Because the church has the greatest mission in the world. The church's mission is to glorify God. As God has been teaching us, how do we glorify God? God glorifies himself by putting himself on display through his church. In other words, God is glorified as the church magnifies his character. As we take the magnifying glass and put it on the church, and the church, excuse me, the world sees the character of God in the church, God is glorified. So if you want to see the glory of God, then look at the church. To, to the degree that the church takes on the character of God, God is glorified in his church. This is the purpose of the church. God saves sinners. He puts them in the local church. He builds them up so that they could reflect his image and so that the glory of God could shine forth through the church. Now, why did I say God is glorified through our service in the church? Because as we see in Ephesians 4, as Scott's been unpacking for us and will continue, God has gifted every believer without exception to serve in their role in the church. Not only that, but last week God has provided, not last week God provided, but we talked about it last week, that God provides apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers to what end? Why, why would God gift the church with these leaders? Verse 12 of Ephesians 4 gives the answer, so that the leaders would equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So the leaders equip the saints to carry out their assigned task or to carry out their gift. Why? Here's the key. End of verse 12. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. If we're in Christ, then we have a role to play in this church so that the church greater reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. As we carry out our assigned role in the church, we are building one another up 
to conform more and more to the image of Christ. What a mission. What a mission that as we reflect God's character, we shine forth the glory of God into the world. But not only do we have an internal mission to build one another up, to build up the body of Christ, as Ephesians talks about, we have an outward mission to glorify God in the world. Listen how Peter describes this, 1 Peter 2.9. He's describing the church, and he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been assigned the privilege of proclaiming the excellencies of God. Can you imagine a greater task to be assigned. That's amazing. Jesus told us that our service glorifies God. He said, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So listen, as we actively serve in this church, both toward one another and outwardly toward the world, God's glory shines forth. So let me ask you, do you want God to be glorified? Do you, do you want God to be glorified? And if you love God, then you want him to be put on display. If you love God, then you want him to be magnified and reflected into the world. And if you want God to be glorified, then you'll love the mission of the church because the mission of the church is to display the glory of God. Our love, our thankfulness for Christ and what he's done for us it ought to just drive us to be active in the church. It ought to put fuel in your tank to be active in the church and to carry out your gift toward one another and to exalt the glory of Christ to the world. Now listen, I don't know where you're at with this this morning, but there is nowhere else that I would rather be than in the church. And I just want to tell you something personal this morning as we close. Growing up, my family and I lived in Bozeman, Montana, and when I was in high school, I was, all I really cared about was getting to the quarterback, making plays in the backfield, and somehow getting Tana Holiday's attention. That's my, that's my wife now. But I was so consumed with my own pride, I was so consumed with my own glory, I was so consumed with, with my own desires. But one day we were out at at a football practice and we had a man come to our practice and he began to talk to us. And after the practice, I talked to the man and he said, you know, we asked if we want, want to go to lunch and talk about the Lord, talk about the gospel. I had no idea. I was ignorant of the truth. And so we met at this restaurant called Five Guys and we talked about the gospel And systematically, we went step by step through the gospel. And you guys probably know that man. It was Matt Tebow. And Matt Tebow and I sat down, and he unfolded the gospel with me, and the Lord gripped my heart. And as I saw my sin, and as the Lord weighed heavily the sin that I, and the the judgment that I deserved for my sin, I repented, I believed, all because of the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart, and the Lord completely transformed my life. But not only did he transform my life, he placed me into a local church. And in that local church, I, 
I saw men and women who loved Christ's bride. I saw men and women who modeled what it meant to love the local church. I saw people who loved the mission of the church and the world, and they gave everything they had to that mission. I saw pastors who loved the church and sacrificed for the church. And listen, why am I, why am I telling you that story? Because I think sometimes a love for the local church is more often caught than it is taught. If you love the local church this morning, then think back to the people that have, have showed you how to love the local church. They've showed you how to center your life around the church. And if you love the local church this morning, then model what it means to love the church. Model what it means to center your life around the church. And if you're in Christ, let me tell you one of the greatest privileges that you have. If you're in Christ, you have been adopted into the greatest institution on planet Earth. You've been adopted by God and placed into a church that Christ promised to build, that Christ shed his blood for, that Christ is the head of, that builds up the health of your soul, and that glorifies God as you serve in it. So let me just ask you this morning, is there enough here to compel you to love the local church? So whoever you are, whatever stage you're at in life, love the Lord, love his church, and commit your life to it. Amen? Amen. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not certain where you're at with the Lord. You're not certain where you stand with his church. And I just want to say, if that's you this morning, then more importantly than even loving the church is you need to f- figure out where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. The church cannot save you. Coming to church cannot get you into heaven, but the Lord can. The Lord can save you. The Lord can transform your heart, and he loves to save sinners. He loves to save those who are broken over their sin, who come to him and bow their knee and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's you this morning, or if there's any doubt in your mind, then don't leave here with, with a question of where I stand before the Lord. Okay, settle Settle where you stand before the Lord today. Maybe if you're not sure, then then call out to the Lord. Ask him to save you. Believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and begin walking with the Lord today.